1914, along the Western Front, uh, during World War I, uh, British, British and German troops together kind of involved themselves in what would be an impromptu ceasefire. Now, it was only five months into the conflict, so it was relatively pretty early on, and it was Christmas. German troops began lighting candles and putting them on the trenches. And any kind of tree that was around them, they would put the candles on the trees, and they, they began to sing Christmas carols. Now, the British troops heard this, and they responded by shouting out their own Christmas carols. The explosions of gunfire and bombs that were going off even hours before this turned into songs. Turned into songs of celebration. This actually led to an exchange of like small gifts, whatever they had, most likely just food and tobacco and alcohol. That's all they had. Um, but it led to this exchange of gifts across no man's land. Isn't that cool? This ceasefire also led to a, a spot in, in the conflict where, where those could go out and they could gather those who had just recently been killed and actually bring them back to their lines. Depending on where you were along the Western Front, um, this, this ceasefire lasted anywhere from Christmas Day all the way up to New Year's Day. Enemies became friends. For a moment, both sides were caught up in a different story. For a moment, they were just human beings, away from home, away from their families at Christmas. You know, for a moment, they were just human beings that needed each other. They were lonely. For a moment, they belonged to something far larger than themselves. There's something about moments like that or hearing stories like that that just make you come alive a little bit. I don't know how else to describe it, but you know what I mean? Something kind of starts to like just jump a little bit in your chest. It's beautiful. It's profound. But why is that? In what world could enemies find common ground, something bigger than themselves, that would actually make them friends for even just one day? Enemies. Where did we go wrong where, where it can maybe seem like we actually have more enemies than we do friends? You versus me. Was that always the story? Is that actually how life started? You know, we love justice. We love, whether we care to admit it or not, we, we love to see somebody pay for an evil that they have done. Most of our stories and our films and our TV shows are based on that premise. But far too often we don't love reconciliation or forgiveness in the same way. But then we come to a moment like this. On the Western Front during World War I, during this extremely dark conflict, and something inside of us comes alive when we hear it. And I think that points to something far more significant than we even realize. Jesus said this wild thing in the Gospel of John. He said, greater love has no one than this, than most of you know this, than those who lay down one's life for one's friends. Maybe in our pursuit for comfort, we've left something crucial behind. So I'll ask again, you versus me. You know, was that always the story? Is that how life started? Let's look at the beginning. We read in Genesis that God created the world and called it good. 
In this good world, we see God's presence dwelling in his creation. It's, it's his presence that actually made the world good. In this God-so-good world, we don't just see God's goodness, we actually see a harmony between human beings. In this good world, you and I are in harmony. There's this line in Genesis 2 where it says, The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, I know this has far more to do with marriage, but whether it's marriage, whether it's friendship, whatever, the reality is we were made to be in friendship and relationship with each other. God's good world, his presence-soaked world, is really defined by two relationships. The first relationship is this, the relationship with God. And then two, relationship with each other. We see this at the very beginning of God's good world. These two relationships really are what define God's good world. Beginning with the relationship with God, but then two, so relationship with God vertical, and then relationship with each other horizontal. When, God, when Adam and Eve bought into the lie that they didn't need God's presence to have a good world, that lie didn't simply just break the relationship we have with God. That lie actually broke the relationship between you and me. Later in Genesis, there's this story about two brothers, Cain and Abel. And I want to read the story over us. Genesis 4, starting in verse 2, says this. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. So Abel was a shepherd and Cain was a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of his firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain, his offering, he did not look favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. But then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's, let's go out to the field. And while they were out in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And then he replies, and catch the tone here, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? If you read a little bit of attitude there, it's because there's a little bit of attitude there. All right, so what's actually going on here? Why, why would God accept Cain's offering and not, or why would he accept Abel's offering instead of Cain's? It can seem kind of cruel. But hear this, it's not so much the gift that was given. It's more about the intention and the motivation of the giver. That's what's really going on in the story. One commentary I read this week said this, God's response towards Cain and Abel was not due to the nature of the gift per se, whether it's grain or it's an animal, but the integrity of the giver. There is something deeper going on in the heart of Cain that God is addressing. Even the offering that Cain is bringing is based out of a heart of selfishness. Can you, you can see the attitude going through the story. Right? It's, you notice in the story that God, even though he, he does not look favorably on, on Cain's offering, it's God who comes looking after Cain. Hey, why are you angry? Why are you upset? God pursues him even in the midst of not looking at his favor on, or looking favorably on his offering. 
And if your beginning place is selfishness, you can even see it in Cain's tone. I don't know, God, where, am I my brother's keeper? Right? You can see the resentment and the anger even in his reply. If your beginning place is selfishness, you need to protect that at all costs, don't you? Anything or anyone who comes against you or challenges you must be stopped. So Cain's selfishness and anger and his contempt towards God and his brother eventually leads to Cain actually taking the life of his own brother. Selfishness and brokenness lead to an even darker place, the taking of a life. As far as I know, this is the first murder that's ever recorded in the Bible. The lie Cain buys into that he doesn't need God's presence to have a good world. That is the lie that Cain continues to buy into, just like his mother and father. And we see this, we see this selfishness play out time and time and time again throughout God's people in the Old Testament. Murder and hatred and jealousy and deceit, they literally plague the friendship, the relationship between human beings. There are moments, absolutely, where individuals, you know, hear the invitation from God to live differently and to be selfless, but it never lasts, does it? The relationship between us, you and I, human beings, it remains broken. At this point in the story, the Garden of Eden seems really far off in the distance. Eden seems really far away. And then we come to Jesus. And then we get to Jesus. He begins gathering people together, doesn't he? He invites men and women to come and follow him. And oftentimes, it's from the most unlikely of places. He'll say things like, the greatest commandment, the greatest thing you could ever do is love the Lord your God with everything that you are. And then he'll go on to say the second greatest thing, the next greatest thing you could do is actually love your neighbor as yourself. He'll say things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What's Jesus getting at here? In real time, Jesus begins to confront the selfishness and the brokenness that has driven people away from each other. Why would Jesus say these, why would Jesus say these two things? Why would these be the greatest commandments? They seem kind of simple. It seems like there could be other elaborate things that you could do that Jesus would say, this is actually the greatest thing. Well, I think Jesus is pointing at the two essential relationships in God's good world. He's going back to creation, our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. And the beautiful thing is, Jesus starts this with his disciples. Jesus starts this with his disciples. Look, let's take a minute and actually look at his, his disciples for a minute. Because I think sometimes we have like a, a fairy tale picture of his disciples, like they lived in a, you know, rainbows and sunshine community where everything was good all the time. Watch this. All right, so let's, for example, let's look at Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. Now, tax collectors were Jewish men who worked for the Roman Empire. And what they would do is they would go around and they would collect the ridiculously unfair tax from their own people. And not just that, he would actually charge an extra percent so that he could pocket some of them. Probably not the most popular guy. So we've got Matthew, the tax collector, and then right across the table from him is a man named Simon the Zealot. Now, zealots were a religious extremist group at the time. What they would do is they took it on themselves to rid the world of Roman citizens. And 
their own people who were traitors. And the way they did that, it's kind of gruesome, but they would carry a knife in their pocket or under their robe, and what they would do is kind of slither their way through crowds, and they would, they would actually go and assassinate human beings. So you've got <laughs> Simon the Zealot sitting across from Matthew the tax collector. Can you imagine the dinner conversations? Hey, Matthew, how was your day? Mm. Like in any other scenario outside of the table with Jesus, these two men were mortal enemies. We don't really catch the weight of that when we read through the Gospels until we look a little deeper. In real time, Jesus was putting back together what selfishness and brokenness had torn apart. Fellowship. Friendship. Friendship at the deepest level, a friendship that is marked by the presence of God. See, these two men were enemies outside of the table of Jesus. But at the table, in the economy of Jesus, the kingdom of God, these two enemies became brothers. Jesus said this other thing in John 15. He said, no longer do I call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. To Jesus, healing the relationship between friend and enemy seems almost as important as healing the relationship between people and God. Why do you think that is? I think it's because it's our relationships, it's our friendships with one another that we get to see the presence of God begin to heal a broken world. God has chosen us, people, to be vehicles of his healing presence in the world. Pretty heavy. <laughs> ah. But that, whether we like to acknowledge it or not, that is what God chose. But not just individually, but together. Over the last two years, we have become a very digital society. Most of our interactions with friends or family have been over screens, haven't they? Zoom calls, FaceTime, Facebook Messenger calls. You know, all of those things have become the new come on over for coffee. I'm thankful for these tools, but they do have a downside, don't they? We have seen friends become enemies because of angry comments. We have said things or we have had things said to us over a screen that we may, we may not have said if we were actually face to face. Maybe because we are in front of a screen, we have forgotten the power of what our words can do. Followers of Jesus, unfortunately, <laughs> myself included, have been just as guilty of this. This isn't just an out there thing. This is an in here thing. We forget the power of our words, and instead of building people up, we can oftentimes push them even farther down. And as a society, we are slipping more and more into a way of living that involves contempt with one another. Whether it's a religious view or it's a political view or a moral view, we are moving more into a headspace where we can't simply just disagree with one another. To say it another way, if we disagree, we become enemies. John Tyson had this to say in his book, A Beautiful Resistance. Contempt is the feeling someone else is beneath consideration. They are worthless. They are deserving of scorn. Contempt slips so easily into our hearts these days and it lodges there. And what's in our hearts comes out through our mouths. 
Christians, I'm sorry to say, he's a pastor himself, are often little, if any, better than the rest of society when it comes to this failing. In fact, in addition to social and political differences, we put others down because of moral and theological arguments. Maybe in our pursuit for comfort, we've left something crucial behind. We may not be firing guns at one another, but our words can pierce like bullets. Many of us are walking around bleeding out, and is anybody even noticing? I found myself hit by the fact this week that I get really broke. More and more I read, like just, was it, was it this week that there was, a, there was like a maternity hospital that was bombed? Like, like what do you do with that? Right? And I, and I get broken up about it, and it breaks me to tears. But then I let my words kind of just fly out of my mouth without even thinking about them. I may never hold a gun in my hand. I hope I don't ever have to hold a gun in my hand. But oftentimes, my words can murder and hurt just as badly as a gun would. It's far too easy to go on the attack when we know someone disagrees with us. It's really easy to retaliate when somebody does an evil thing against us. Quite honestly, I don't, think it's even, I don't think it's even something we can always choose. I think it's something that happens almost in a subconscious level because, unfortunately, it's very much in the air that we breathe, isn't it? It is the very environment we live in. We're, we're sitting with a friend and we're having lunch or we're having coffee, or we will starting tomorrow. <laughs> and we share a genuine concern for somebody that we know or, or we share empathy for somebody and then all of a sudden it turns to gossip just like that. Or we're driving past Newton's and we're turning down, we're taking the big turn by the thoroughfare and somebody's driving 40 and you know it's about to turn 80 and you're just like... You're just right there waiting, and you mutter a little word under your breath. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, not me. But I think one of the biggest ways that the enemy traps us up is how you and I relate to one another. Why do you think that is? Because how we relate to each other matters, I think, more than we even realize. How you and I do friendship or how you and I don't do relationship, I think, matters more than we realize. If we aren't unified together in a kingdom of God community, the church, how does the world see how good God is? If we in the church can't get along with each other, how is the world going to know that God loves them? I know that that is, like, thanks, John. <laughs> but really... If we in the church can't get along and we have more enemies than we do friends, do, do we actually have good news to share? That's, that is a so, like I wrote that on my paper when I was writing out today and I just had to sit there and stare at those words. Because that, that's, a, that's a John pointing it at himself. As, this isn't me that's like, Bleh. like this is, man, God, do I have more enemies than I do friends? We read in Acts together at the start, and it says that they devoted themselves to fellowship. Right in the middle of devotion to apostles' teaching and communion and to prayer, it seems like kind of a random and maybe not even as important thing, doesn't it? But I think, again, it goes back to something way more important than we realize. 
Jesus gathered a community around him because God's healing plan was going to happen through kingdom friendships. God created the world and placed human beings in it to spread his presence, to fill the earth. And Jesus is restoring this design, this plan with his friends, with his disciples in real time. They devoted themselves to fellowship because that was how God's presence was going to fill the whole earth again. Through God's people living in kingdom friendship. Just like Jesus said, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. But instead, I call you what? Friends. When we are marked by the presence of God, we let his presence spill over by how we live out our friendships. When we are marked by the presence of God, we let his presence spill over by how we interact with every single person we collide with. When we're at the independent and we're spending a million dollars to fill up our car, even when it's a hybrid. <laughs> you know, when we stop up the road and we get our coffee from the Java Moose and there's a lineup behind us and we're all grumpy. At Harbor Grill on Wednesdays when we're getting our lunch and it's taking longer than we want because we're, we're busy. In here, as we worship and as we lift up the name of Jesus, on Wednesday mornings when we come and we pray, in each other's homes as we eat together, or we can soon, and <laughs> we, we share our lives with one another. A space in the world where the culture of heaven is in the midst of a people filled with the presence of God. This phrase came to me when I was just reading and praying. And I, I think this... I'm not, this wasn't from any portion of the Bible per se, but I think this is a beautiful picture of what the church could be. But do you notice, do you notice something about this sentence? There's, there's really two factors at play in this sentence. Number one is the presence of God. And two is the people. Two is the people, not one person on their own. No, people. A group, a community, taking the presence of God and letting it shape them. The presence of God begins to shape a culture of heaven in the midst of a people. How? Well, it starts with devotion. It starts with devoting ourselves to friendship. Saying that we desire friendship that is not just simply positive, but friendship that is marked and filled with the presence of God. Common interests are great, age groups are great, but what's deeper than any of that? What makes me, a skinny jean tattooed pastor, <laughs> relate to a bunch of dudes fishing and I can barely lift like, I don't know, 10 pound dumbbell? <laughs> the presence of God. Right? Some of my best friends are sometimes twice the age of me. That only happens when your friendship is marked by the presence of God. It's literally what we were designed for. God created us to be in deep friendship with him, but that needs to spill over into our deep friendship with one another. It's this and then this. And we block it when we say, God, it's only you and me. We stop it. They devoted themselves to fellowship because ultimately it's how God designed the very good life to be lived. 
Acts 2.42, we read this, or 44 earlier, we get a really beautiful picture of what, of what this type of friendship looks like. All the believers were together and had everything in common. I wonder how that got there. I bet that was some fun conversations. <laughs> they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. We give money and then we give 20% away. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke their bread in their homes together and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of the people and the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. From these few verses, I think we can see two really important realities when it comes to friendships that are rooted in the presence of God. The number one is this, they needed each other. It's not really intricate and intense. They, just, they needed each other. We need each other. We may not live in the first century where we're under the Roman rule, but we live in a society that is soaked with anti-kingdom of God. Right? It's disorienting. Left on our own, it is very disorienting, and it leaves us, many of us, very confused. Again, we may not be carrying around a gun in our hands, but our words and our thoughts can be so violent. Sometimes the only thing that can keep me grounded, honestly, is this friendship right here. Like, I get together every week with, with two, like, I have, I have lots of really good friends here, but there are two people, there are two people especially that, that I know I need to get together with every single week. I cry with them. I share with them. I pray with them. I rejoice with them. I mourn with them. I get angry with them. Why? Because I need them. I need them. Jesse and I, we, we built our marriage on the presence of God. That was our, like one of our first moments together was like, man, if we're going to do this, this has to be built on the foundation of God's presence. We pray together. We cry together. We, we laugh. We dream. And we seek God's face together. Why? Because I need that. I don't want just a good marriage. I want a presence of God-soaked marriage. We have to let the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, spread and spill over into this direction. It can't stop just here. So if one is they needed each other, the two is deeper. Two is the fellowship is a taste of God's restored world. Fellowship is a taste of God's restored world. I read this a few weeks ago, and I want to read it over uh, Read it over us again. Michelle, I'll invite you to come up. I'm almost done. Half hour later. I'm no, I'm just joking. <laughs> Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city. What usually fills a city? People. The new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for his husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. People. Community. Friendship. The church. God with his people. All of us with one another and God filling the world. That's a, that's a pretty beautiful picture. Like when it comes to hope to hope for, that, that's pretty awesome. There will be no more death, 
He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain. The old things have passed away. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, that sounds pretty awesome. Well, get this, the church, a space in the world where the culture of heaven is in the midst of a people filled with the presence of God. The church gets to live that out here and now waiting for it to come to pass. Do, do you realize that? Like we as the church, we get to take what I just read in Revelation and we get to say, that is where we're going. And it starts with you and me. It starts with one another. It starts with looking at your enemy and say, hey, you know what? Jesus calls me to be your friend. What are you doing later? I cook a mean lobster, come on over. That was a lame illustration. We do it because we're living into a reality now and waiting for God to finish it. Jesus came and he disrupted a world of, of selfishness and contempt built on violence and enemies, you versus me economy, to restore the relationship that we were always meant to have, one with God and one for one another. A space in the world where the culture of heaven is in the midst of a people filled with the presence of God. Now, as we go today, there's really one simple challenge. How do you do that? I think it starts like any, you would go back to when you were a little kid and you're at the playground. Will you be my friend? You know the wonder when I get to watch Adeline meet new friends? It's like, it's like we, were at we were at basketball thing on Friday morning. And she has not stopped talking about the few girls that she met. Yeah, I got to play basketball, but I met friends, Dad. Friendship. I want, us, I want us to do something this week. For some of you, this is like really, really easy, awesome. But for some of you, maybe this is a real challenge and that's okay, because we're all in different seasons. No season is better than the other. We are in seasons and guess what? Community means we're in this together. So I want to invite us to do one thing this week. What does it mean to be a kingdom community? And it means inviting people into our home. So I want each of us either to attend a dinner or a meal at somebody's house or invite somebody over. Having a meal together. But I don't want us to just have a meal together. I want us to do a couple other things. I want us to have a good meal and cook a good meal. Have like, we had, we had Aaron over the other day for supper and she, chocolate cake with boiled icing. Lord have mercy. But one, I want us to eat together. But two, I want us to share together. Share how you're doing. We are, tomorrow we are literally going from one extreme to the other. Some of us are really excited. Some of us are terrified. That's, that's very real. Some of us are excited, but some of us are like, man, this is freaking me out, John. Talk about it. Share how you're doing, even when it's awkward. Like, don't just say, good. Okay, cool. Like, where do you go with that? Like, good, because, or you know what? Honestly, I'm struggling. Oh man, tell me about it. And then three, I want us to do something else. Pray together. Hey, what's going on in your life? 
Maybe if you don't even know a good answer. Maybe it's, I don't know. I don't know. Whatever it is. It doesn't have to be elaborate. Maybe, you know, hey, I've just been having a lot of bad days lately. Could you pray that I could have some good days? Absolutely, I'll pray for that. So one, eat together. Two, share together. And three, pray together. Would you do that with me this week? Because I think we need to, the reality says, we haven't been meeting for two, two years with one another. Maybe some of us have. But we need to get back into the rhythm of being together. We got to work that muscle again. Because for some of us, that is a really daunting thing. And I get that. But I think we need each other now more than ever. Eat together, share together, pray together. In 1914, in the middle of no man's land on the Western Front, we see enemies become friends. Enemies who were once killing each other, maybe even hours before, lock into something way bigger than themselves to the point where they're exchanging gifts and they're singing Christmas carols. Why is that so powerful to us? Why do we hear those stories and it's just like, man, something good is happening right there. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, that just is really beautiful. I think it's beautiful and I think something comes alive in us because it's actually what we were made for. The presence of God being lived out in real friendship where all of a sudden those you once called enemies become your friends. Because it's a small picture of what we were made for. Fellowship, deep friendship with God, but then also deep friendship with one another. They devoted themselves to fellowship because it's the most natural thing they could do when they were filled with the presence of God. Would you pray with me? God, I just want to thank you. I thank you that you have made us to live in friendship with one another. Some of the most amazing ways that you have blessed me, God, is through other people through friendship, through, through the sharing of advice or through, through having a shoulder to cry on or someone to hug when I'm celebrating. Some of the most potent moments, God, where you have been so close to me is when I'm with other people. And God, I just want to say thank you. Thank you that we are never made to live life in isolation. But we are invited into relationship with you and then relationship with one another. That's why we have Alpha. God, that's why we have Awana and that's why we have Loop and that's why we have youth because we need each other. And God, would you just give us the courage to step into areas that are maybe uncomfortable for us, but we need each other. So God, I just pray over dinner conversations this week. God, I pray over lunch conversations this week. I pray over breakfast conversations this week that, God, we would see your goodness in the land of the living because we shared a moment together. Would we be so caught up in it? It's like, man, you got to come over next week. And then you need to come over the week after that because this has been so good for my soul. God, we will see your goodness in the land of the living as we let your Holy Spirit, your presence spill out over into our friendships. So God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.